the cathedral is a woman who died four or five hundred years ago, and she didn't do anything really great in her life. She was just really good and really dedicated herself to the service of others. And her body is completely untouched. It's completely preserved, which is very unusual. And he's so curious about this. Book Society Podcast. My guest today is Catherine Wolf, the one and only. She has a master's in art history from the University of Michigan. She has a master's in social work from the University of Syracuse. So go Wolverines, go Orangemen. She has a master's in pastoral ministries from SCU, but I don't actually know what SCU is. Santa Clara University. There you go. Go Broncos. Go Broncos. <laughs> she was the chaplain at Stanford University. Go Pine Trees? Yes, the tree. Go Trees. <laughs> she is the editor of Not Less Than Everything, Catholic Writers on Heroes of Conscience from Joan of Arc to Oscar Romero. And that was from HarperCollins in 2013. She is the author of the recent book, Beyond How Humankind Thinks About Heaven. Catherine chose to read Timothy Egan's Pilgrimage to Eternity, which came out in 2019. It's a fantastic book. What I didn't know, that you were religious. I did not know this at all. And what you didn't know is that I have been begging everybody I know to send me a religious scholar so that I could interview them because I have not gotten the opportunity to do that. Oh, well, I'm not sure I'm a religious scholar. I'm not a theologian, but I am a religious person who writes. It's interesting because it's easy to find people who are religious that want to talk about it. And it's pretty easy to find scholars, but it is not easy to find both. And so my question for you is, are you willing to answer as a Catholic for all the crimes of the Catholic Church of the last 2000 years? Because <laughs> I am going to ask you some questions about them if you don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. And as you knew from Timothy Egan's book, he confronts seemingly all of them on his way. So that's what kind of inspired me to go in this direction. I should also say that Catherine and I met at a party at the Miami Book Fair. So we were just hanging out and having a great time. And I thought you'd be a great guest on the podcast. I knew nothing about your work. I knew nothing about your religion. And I've had such a wonderful time preparing for this podcast because I loved Timothy Egan's book. And I loved your book. It's really fascinating and fantastic. We'll talk about it in the next episode. We'll talk about beyond. But it's also inspirational to me because it's such a big topic and You've given me some tips of how to handle something as huge as the history of music and technology over the last 43,000 years. Oh, wow. Okay, that's big. So I think I have less time to cover than you, but you had more density than me. All right. Well, Pilgrimage to Eternity. Why did you pick this book? I knew of Timothy Egan. He's friends of friends, and I really like his articles in the New York Times. And he has sometimes a little acerbic edge. I always agree with him. So when I read this, I was really amazed at how deep he was willing to go into his own experience in the Catholic Church and the doubts that he carried with him and the reason he went on this pilgrimage. One of the joys of this podcast is I don't usually know anything about the books before I read them. I had no idea what I was getting into. For the listeners who haven't read it, he takes the Via Francesina. Am I saying it right? Francesina. Frankishina, which is a pilgrim's route from England all the way to Rome. And he walks it, or his rule is that he will stay on the path in some form. So either on his feet or in a car, but he won't fly. And he walks what seem like the most difficult parts of it. It's a pilgrim's narrative, and it's really interesting. And he changes throughout it, and he tries to meet the Pope. He's a beautiful writer. I mean, he could write about paint drying, and it would be interesting to read. Have you ever done a pilgrimage? No, I haven't. It's actually been a 
wish of mine that I could do one of the Caminos. There are many, as you know, people mainly know about the ones that converge in Santiago de Compostela in Spain. But this was a medieval practice that I'd love to do someday. But I was very grateful for this book for lots of reasons. That one is I felt like I was going with him. I really did, because we have such common background and such common concerns. Oh, yeah. You're both Northwestern Catholics. Exactly. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about the history of pilgrimages? I don't think that's obvious to everyone. What they are, just a general overview. You would take a route from point A to B, point B usually being a sacred place. Muslims make the pilgrimage to Mecca and the Christians make the pilgrimage to Rome. So it's usually to a sacred place. It's not only a physical, but a spiritual journey. And that the rigors of the journey will be clarifying and purifying for you and that you will arrive in your sacred place, Rome or Mecca or wherever, in a receptive state so that you can be there in all your goodness. The way he describes it is he met a lot of pilgrims on the way and that they were all sort of unplugging from their life. Exactly. Not necessarily religious people, but people who really knew that they had to step back from the kind of everyday cares and distractions of this time and get clarity of some sort to know themselves better. Do you think that writing a book about a pilgrimage, especially when your job is, as Timothy Egan says, is to be a professional writer, diminishes some of the spiritual benefit of it? You know, when I started it, I wondered about that because I just figured he was a skeptic. And he certainly admits to that, and I am too, to a certain extent, but he really went in with a very open mind and heart and was very honest. He started saying, you hope the soul has not gone dark. The goal is to be fresh and open to possibility. So that's how he set out. But he carries a fair amount of baggage of anger of, you know, the dilemmas that the church presents as to what it preaches and what it practices. And he went through so many of those things as he arrived in different places along the way, places where there had been horrible slaughters of Christians by Christians, places where there had been magnificent miracles. And so he plays those off and on back and forth as he goes along. And I have to say that you could read this book as a travel book because it's just delightful and it's got enough clues for these places that he visits along the way so that you could use it as your travel book. He even talks about certain restaurants to go to and he loves talking about the food. And so you could read it that way. And then there is his spiritual kind of unfolding where he comes to a place where a lot of the things that really stood in the way that blocked the light for him, he managed to get rid of them. I thought that he started this book kind of as an atheist, or at least as like a weddings and funerals Catholic. And he seemed to become more religious along the way. And when he met his son and daughter, he was trying to make sure that they hadn't just completely lost faith and that they were open to finding God. And this was about two thirds of the way down his pilgrimage. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, have you ever lost your faith? And if so, how did you find it again? Hmm. I'm a very fortunate person and I have not ever lost my faith. That hasn't been the challenge in life for me in the religious realm. The challenge for me is that I keep the Catholic form of the Christian faith But I struggle with the very same things that Timothy Egan struggles with in the book. The violent history of a church that's dedicated apparently to the Messiah of peace, the 
baked in denigration of women, which I think is, you know, really coming back to bite them. Unholy alliances between temporal power and spiritual power, where you get the church and the state together and they, in the name of God, slaughter each other. You can talk about the history of the Crusades. You can talk about the wars of the Reformation. And as he goes on his pilgrimage, he runs into places that bring those things to mind, partly because some of the battles played out there or some of the principal actors were born there. I think he took the approach that I think I did for a long time, which was, I got to understand this, then maybe I can believe. Okay, I got to really look at all this. And he really does. He's unstinting. But what he seems to then open himself up to is a kind of encounter. So that faith isn't something that is a museum where there's a lot of stuff from the past and you just sort of say that you believe in all. But that religion, faith really is an encounter. And along the way, you start seeing him have these little encounters that really seem to give him, I would call it grace. I mean, there's a woman with a little child she'd taken who got hugged by the Pope. And he said he came away with that just in the ripple of this joy that he felt. Yeah, it's amazing because nothing really happens. He doesn't have a moment with a fiery vision in the sky the whole experience just seems to change him. And I just noticed him as a narrator changing as he went, which what a feat as an author. It's easy to read it and think, oh, this is a guy going on a quest, but he's writing about it presumably long after the fact. And to recapture his mindset at the beginning and bring us into that and then evolve it over time was really amazing. Yes. And there is, as I said before, this very touching family story where his wife's sister has been stricken by cancer. And so there's this shadow, this cloud over it. And you feel as though he's trying to make his way towards some way of praying for her. Or could there be a miracle or anything? So there is that real desire that you feel in him for this very sad thing that's going on. And that works out very beautifully too. I noticed a lot of the stops in the Camino are places where saints have lived or died or done something notable. And they all have to do with unimaginable suffering. And so my question for you as a Catholic is, why are Catholics so obsessed with suffering? <laughs> well, one of the other threads you may have noticed is that he now and then dips into the thoughts of St. Augustine, who, of course, was just this mega influence on really Western civilization, but certainly on the Catholic Church. And he had an almost dualistic view of the universe. And there was suffering, there was evil, there was good, and that God allowed for suffering because that was the way we could learn. But it's a harsh sort of message. And I found it chafed against that in the earlier part of the book. And then he comes to a point where actually it's in where the remains of Augustine are interred. And he says he really wants to get rid of that this way in which Augustine really fought against the material and really saw it as corrupted and the spiritual being the good, the only possible good. And what you've seen Timothy Egan do throughout the whole book is plunge into the material. He plunges into history. He plunges into the people and those strange miracles that he encounters. And he plunges into his encounters with people. And that's where he is finding himself. And so he is able to get rid of that influence from Augustine where the material is to be suspected. 
that it's corrupt in some way because Timothy is finding himself that way. I don't know if that explains the obsession with suffering. Christianity and the suffering Messiah is so much a part of our culture that it's hard for me to even see it as strange. But it is objectively strange, right? Yes, except if you look at the crucifixion, and that is the central human turning point, that and the resurrection, and the crucifixion was a horrible act of suffering on the part of Jesus. And so there is this sense among Christians, and often among mystics who take a really ascetic sort of approach, that they need to suffer as well because Jesus did, and that they partake in that suffering. Isn't the point of Jesus suffering so that we don't have to suffer? or that he would redeem our sufferings. <laughs> yes, yes. And there are theologians who concentrate right on the cross as being the moment of salvation, whereas other theologians concentrate on the fact that God became man, that Jesus was both, and went through the suffering on our behalf, but then rose again as an example for what's going to happen to us. Yeah, one of the things that struck me in this book, I am doing some research on medieval musicians as part of my own book. So Peter Abelard and... Hildegard of Bingen figure in the book, but the person that binds these two together is Bernard de Clairvaux. And he is mentioned in a lot of these books because a lot of these sites were his sites where he either did something or didn't do something or anointed someone or killed someone. Bernard de Clairvaux is just such a fascinating character. I'm writing about these two characters. Hildegard was sainted almost immediately, and Peter Abelard has still not been sainted. It was largely because Bernard de Clairvaux loved Hildegard and hated Peter Abelard. And he was really the most powerful man in the church at the time. He was the kingmaker. One of his students became the pope. So it was interesting to hear Timothy Egan's take on him and to just hear about some of these places that he had visited. Have you visited some of these European sites? He went to pretty out-of-the-way places because he was following this via that took him from monastery to monastery. You know, I've been to the obvious places. I lived in Rome for a year, so I can talk about that. But not many of these other places. I'd love to do it sometime. You know, I didn't even think of that, that these are not tourist destinations. These are just monasteries in the middle of nowhere. A lot of them are, yes. So I guess you would have to be going on like a Catholic vacation to go to these places. Yeah, and have really good boots because, boy, he took a beating himself. <laughs> that was the hardest part for me to read. The blisters, yeah. <laughs> the snowstorm. <laughs> I think C.S. Lewis writes about anyone can be a contemplative atheist until they get a toothache. You know, it's easy to live in the clouds until something in your body makes you pay attention to the very present here and now. And as a matter of fact, he says something that his dying sister-in-law says, I know, Timothy, religion is complicated until you need it. He talks a good deal about proofs of God, and Augustine has some proofs of God. And my favorite one is God is the greatest thing you can imagine. And if you can hold this thought in your head, then it must exist somewhere, and it would be better if it did exist than if it didn't exist, and therefore God exists. And that's St. Anselm, who he visited. His home was A-O-S-T-A, Austin. And he developed that. He also developed this wonderful motto of faith-seeking understanding. And that turns Timothy's quest around because he starts out trying to understand things so he can have faith. But Anselm says faith is seeking understanding. So Timothy starts to open himself up and more and more he sets aside his objections and opens himself to these encounters that he has. And I love, of course, the most beautiful one when he's in the church with Santa Lucia Filippini. Well, he's been consternated about what the heck are miracles, because as a skeptic, as a 21st century person who honors science, we are all a little bit 
But there's a place called Montefiascone. And in the cathedral is a woman who died four or five hundred years ago. And she didn't do anything really great in her life. She was just really good and really dedicated herself to the service of others. And her body is completely untouched. It's completely preserved, which is very unusual. And he's so curious about this. And he manages to go and see her at a quiet time. It looks like her eyes are half open. And he starts taking pictures because he can't quite believe this. And as he's doing it, he sees a flutter. And so he has this experience of feeling as though this woman is giving him a little sign, or as his wife says, a wink. And he has this series of photographs where there does seem to be this thing that happens. So Timothy got his miracle. I was going to ask you about this, about the incorruptible saints. And this is that there are some saints who died and their bodies were not mummified, but they have never decayed. And I looked into this a little bit because I figured if this exists, there's pictures of it. And I found a picture of Lucy. She has a cover on her face. So you can't actually see her face. She has like a metal statuary cover on her face and you can see her hands. She looks how you would expect a refrigerated corpse to look to me. What it says, though, is that she was, until our modern corrupt times, she was incorruptible. So the previous generation got to see her in all her glory, but you sinners will not be able to see her in her glory. And this sounds like the classic religious grift, that you can't see it, but it was like that before you just missed it. Yes, although for Timothy, and I respect his eagle eye for BS, he describes her as a woman in full reality, doesn't talk about the mask. And he talks about the flutter of the eyelids. And so that's extraordinary to me. I mean, I've certainly never had anything like that happen. And his Jewish wife says, come on, <laughs> that's just what you want to believe. And he says, well, maybe it was given to me so that I would believe. And I thought that was so touching, so moving. And of course, can I just add that the other theme that we haven't talked about yet is that he starts out by writing Francis a letter and he's trying to pull all his Jesuit friends strings to get him in. And along the way, he keeps quoting Francis. He's like his North Star, as though he's going to Rome, not necessarily to go to Rome, but to go to Francis. Francis, I think, is the Pope that the Catholic Church needed at this moment. I have a pretty complicated relationship with the Catholic Church. I think an interesting relationship with the Catholic Church. I've recently had an experience that was almost a miracle to me that involved the Pope. As an atheist, I saw how these religious epiphanies can work. We actually have to move on from this book and move on to your book. So next week, we'll be back with Catherine Wolf. We're going to talk about her book, Beyond How Humankind Thinks About Heaven. And I'm going to tell the story about how the Pope almost performed a miracle for me. See you next week. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. Thank you so much for listening. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor. You can reach us at Book Society Pod on Instagram, also BookSocietyPod at gmail.com if you want to send a direct email. Santiago Ramones is the co-producer and also definitely edits the show. He has his own podcast called Bit Depth. It's really good. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, BookSocietyPod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter.
that Jesus went through the suffering on our behalf, but then rose again as an example for what's going to happen to us. So I like to take the more optimistic route. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm not big on suffering. I don't like it. <laughs> 